to the Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. At our last class we considered the first aspect of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have noted before in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 records the birth of the king. Matthew chapter 2 records the reception of the king. Matthew 3, the herald of the king. Matthew chapter 4 records the trial and testing of the trial and triumph of the king. Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7 comprise the policy speech of the king. And here in this fourth chapter where we see the trial and triumph of the king, we are shown very clearly what it was that reigned triumphant through this trial. The Lord Jesus Christ here is revealed as a vessel in whom the word of God was firmly enthroned as a king. It was the word of God that ruled his life, that controlled every action, that controlled his response to the uh, suggestions of the tempter on this occasion. Now when we consider the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ and we consider John chapter 1, we saw how there the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as the Word made flesh. And we saw how John traces the origin of the character and works of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the Word of Yahweh. You know, as we look at, uh, at the trial of Christ as recorded in Matthew 1, 4 and Luke chapter 4, we see something of what that means when he was the Word made flesh. We saw at our last class that when the tempter came to him, suggesting that he turn the stones into bread, we see that the tempter was met with his answer from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we endeavour to show at that time that as the Lord met this aspect of his trial, his mind was saturated in the principle set forth in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a chapter that reveals the purpose that Yahweh had in leading Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord Jesus Christ had just spent 40 days in the wilderness and his mind was saturated with the principles of that 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. So that when the tempter came to him with the suggestion that he miraculously provide bread, that we, as we suggested, that at a later stage he might manifest himself as the Messiah of Israel, the tempter was met with Deuteronomy chapter 8, living in a man. And that's what he had to encounter. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ's was, mind was so filled with that section of the word at that time that never once, never for a moment did he waver. Never for a moment did he in his own mind consider turning those stones into bread because he fully understood the relationship that he had with his father. He fully understood the characteristics that were required in a true son of God. And so he never wavered for a moment but the word of truth itself answered the suggestion of the adversary on that occasion. And the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated to that adversary that he was indeed a true and genuine son of God. 
by the very way that he responded to the circumstances in which he found himself. But having been refuted on that point, we find that the devil or the tempter or the adversary, whichever we like to call him, didn't leave the matter there. In verse 5 we read of Matthew chapter 4, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. So once more the tempter comes to him with the question, with the, uh, um, with the question, if thou be the Son of God. Once again the tempter was trying to goad the Lord Jesus Christ into some presumptive action. But the Lord Jesus Christ once again demonstrates the principles of a true Son of God. A son will always seek to honour his father. A true son will be obedient to his father, will be submissive to his father, and will always seek the honour and glory of his father. And to make such a presumptive action as this, as is suggested by the tempter, would have been in itself to show, uh, to, to presume upon his position. It would be to, to, um, to, to endeavour to, to, to prove his position by some dramatic sign. For the Lord Jesus Christ had no doubt that he was the Son of God. At the age of 12 he had been absolutely convinced that he was the Son of God. Just 40 days before he had had the declaration from heaven that he was the beloved Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ never had any doubt that he was the Son of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ not only had no doubt that he was the Son of God, but he rightly and correctly understand, understood the word of his Father, something that the adversary in this occasion did not do. Now in verse 5 we read, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city. Now, I do not believe that he literally took him from the wilderness into the city of Jerusalem. I believe he did it by the power of suggestion. I believe he only took him there by putting a proposition to him that he do certain things. When we read the account in Luke, we find that, that um, Luke refers to it as the city of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 4, and in, um, and in verse 9, And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. And so in Luke it's referred to as Jerusalem. In Matthew it's referred to as the holy city. And we know that the word holy uh, means something that is set apart for divine use. Something that is separated. And of course the city of Jerusalem was set apart for a special place in the purpose of Yahweh. It was the city upon which Yahweh had placed his name. It was the city where Yahweh's temple, his dwelling place was. 
It's to be the city of the great king in the future age. And so Jerusalem is indeed a city that has been set apart for a special divine purpose. And the tempter takes him into that very city. The very city from which the Messiah is in the future going to reign over all kingdoms of the earth. And not only does he take him into the holy city, but he takes him to a particular part of that city. He takes him to the temple, the centre of, of, um, of, of Yahweh's established system of worship at that particular time. When it says in verse 5, and in Luke 4 verse 9, that the devil set him on a pinnacle of the temple. The word temple there is the word that refers to the whole compass of the sacred enclosure, including the outer courts and porches and all other subordinate buildings appertaining to the temple. There are two words in the Greek that we find used for, the, for, the, for temple. There is the word naos, which refers to the inner temple, the actual inner uh, 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 dwelling place of Yahweh in that temple. That's where the word naos refers to, the, the holy and the most holy places of that temple, to which the normal people of Israel would have no access. But the word here used, the word uh, heron or some such word, it refers to the whole compass of the temple, including the outer court. And so he takes into the court of the temple, we believe, the place where people would congregate and would be assembled. And we're told he sets him upon a pinnacle of the temple. Literally the word pinnacle means a wing. We believe it is suggested that the most probable place for this uh, uh, to which the, the devil referred at this time was the top of Solomon's porch. The top of Solomon's porch was some hundred cubits uh, high off the ground. But it was right on the one edge of the temple. And over the edge of, 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 of that Solomon's porch the, the ground dropped a further 400 cubits down into the Kedron Valley below. And so it was quite a uh, quite a considerable height when one was standing there upon the top of the wing of the temple. We find that Solomon's porch is mentioned several times in the word of God. John chapter 10, for example, is a place where we have reference to the Solomon's porch. In John chapter 10 and verse 23, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, on one occasion, uh, addressed the people in that place and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch then came the Jews round about him and said unto him how long dost thou make us to doubt if thou be the Christ tell us plainly and so you see here's Solomon's porch and Jesus walked into it and the Jews gathered around him it was a place where the people would assemble in this particular entrance to the temple in the third chapter of the book of Acts and at verse 11 we read again of Solomon's porch and we read in, in, uh, in verse 11 that, that Peter and John had just healed the lame man and we read and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John 
all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. So here again we find Solomon's porch associated with a gathering of the people as they pressed round Peter and John as they healed this lame man. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 12 we read, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So in every place we find it it referred to, it's associated with the gathering together of the people, being one of the uh, uh, main entrances into the temple and a place where the people would gather together to assemble. We believe it's significant that the, the, uh, the devil would suggest to the Lord Jesus Christ that he travel up to Jerusalem, the holy city, the city where the Messiah was to be manifested, that he would go to the temple and there in a prominent place would perform this dramatic act. Now we go back to the prophecy of Malachi and we read of the expectations of the people at that particular time. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 Behold I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom ye delight in whom, whom ye delight in behold he shall come saith Yahweh of armies and here was the prophecy of, of Malachi speaking of the coming of, the, of John the Baptist the messenger who was first to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus Christ and then he says the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple and as we showed last time from the writings of, of, of Edeshine it was one of the great expectations of the people at that time that the Messiah would come to the temple in Jerusalem and there would manifest himself and rally the people around him. From, and from that place he would launch forth to uh, establish the kingdom of God upon the earth at that time. And we believe that this was the basis of the suggestion of the adversary at this time. He would already suggested to him that he manifest himself as the prophet like unto Moses who fed the people of Israel with bread from heaven. Now he's suggesting to him that he go to the temple and there from the temple as the people were expecting he would demonstrate to the people in a, in a, in a dramatic sign that he was the son of God that he was the Messiah of Israel. And so he, in, in he by the power of suggestion he takes him to the temple He takes him to a prominent part of the temple where the people were accustomed to gather together and he suggests that there from the height of that that porch he casts himself down Uh, and that, that trusting upon the providential care of Yahweh that was promised to him that he might demonstrate to the people by that dramatic sign that here indeed was the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. You know, it's a clear teaching of scripture that the angels do providentially care for the saints. Now we go to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 
Psalm chapter 34 and verse 7. The angel of Yahweh encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister on behalf of those that are heirs of salvation. So providential uh, angelic care is promised to those that fear Yahweh. And you see Psalm 91 and verses 11 and 12 a very section of scripture that the adversary at this occasion quotes to the Lord Jesus Christ as a basis for him uh, making this, this act. Psalm 91 is a psalm which speaks particularly of the Messiah. And in verses, uh, verses 11 and 12 are the verses that the, the adversary quoted to the Lord. He said, for he, and in those verses we read, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And it's those verses that the adversary quotes as recorded both in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. It's very significant when we look at the way he quotes it. It's very significant that certain words are omitted in the way that he uses it. You see, we come to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Notice the words that are omitted in Matthew's version. See, Psalm 91 verse 11 reads, For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. Now those words are omitted in the words of the adversary in Matthew. But we find from Luke that the adversary did actually quote a little more of that verse than, than is recorded in Matthew. But he still didn't quote it all. Uh, Luke 4 and verse 10. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. But that also is not what the psalm says. The psalm says to keep thee in all thy ways. Now the, way, the Lord Jesus Christ's ways were Yahweh's ways. They were his father's ways. Psalm 40 says, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ also, says, uh, I come to do thy will, O my God. He came to perform Yahweh's will. He came to walk in the ways that Yahweh had set out for him to walk in. And when we read such prophecies as Isaiah chapter 53, we see that the way that the Lord, the way that Yahweh had marked out for His Son, was a path uh, which would lead to the crucifixion. He was to be as a lamb uh, that was dumb before His shearers. He was to come manifested as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. That was the path He was taken to walk. It was a walk which He knew would bring him rejection 
by the people of that time. And the Lord Jesus Christ well knew that a, a dramatic sign before the people of that nature uh, they would acclaim him as their king. That wasn't the path that Yahweh had marked out for him. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew that that providential care that was promised in this psalm would only be given while he walked the paths that his father had set out for him. And we find in the very words of this psalm it was taught to the Lord Jesus Christ that he must trust his father and ultimately his father would reward him. We notice verses 1 to 3 of the psalm. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. And the very trust that the Lord Jesus Christ had in his Father was the very power that delivered him from the snare of the fowler at that time. But in verses 13 to 16 of the psalm we read, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon thou shalt trample under feet. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. So as the adversary directed the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ to this son, goading him on to make this dramatic demonstration that he was the son of God, the, son, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he saw the whole of that son, it would, it would have shown him the trust that he must have in his father. It would have shown him that ultimately, if he walked in the path that his father had set before him, ultimately his father would honour him and reward him in the way he had promised. You see, and the Lord Jesus Christ could quite clearly see that the misquotation of that psalm, those verses of that psalm were actually an incitement to tempt Yahweh, to put Yahweh to the test, to see if he really meant what he said. The Lord Jesus Christ never doubted for a moment that his father meant what he said. He didn't need to put him to the test. He didn't need to prove him in that way. And the Lord Jesus Christ's mind was governed by the word of Yahweh at that time as he rightly understood the principles that were being there set forth. He knew that the providential care of Yahweh would surround him as long as he walked in Yahweh's ways. But he could clearly see that to, to perform that act that was being suggested would not be walking in Yahweh's ways at that time. And so we find that the Lord refutes the suggestion of the adversary in Matthew chapter 4 once again. We find the, as, the, as the, the, the adversary comes to him with this suggestion quoting the word of God to support, his, to support the suggestion he's be, he has put forward. We find in verse 7 Jesus said unto him it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt Yahweh thy Elohim. 
It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt Yahweh thy Elohim. Now in in the 17th Psalm, there's some words there that would have directed the Lord Jesus Christ as he answered the adversary at this time. Psalm 17, verse 4. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. You see, it was the word of Yahweh's lips that kept the Lord Jesus Christ from the path of the destroyer. It was that word firmly believed, rightly and fully understood. It was that word enthroned in his mind, controlling that man, that that, that, that enabled him to so completely and utterly refute the suggestion that had been put to him. We believe that the answer that he gave, Thou shalt not tempt Yahweh thy Elohim, was a two-pronged thrust. Point number one, it showed very clearly that the very suggestion that the tempter was putting forth would have been a, a, a breaching of the commandments because to perform such an act would have been tempting Yahweh. It would have been putting Yahweh to the proof to see if he really meant what he said when a true son should trustingly and unquestioningly believe what his father had said. And so you see, to, to, to perform the very act would have been to tempt Yahweh. And so the Lord Jesus Christ answers him quite straight and forthright to the point when he says, Thou shalt not tempt Yahweh thy Elohim. But you see, I believe there's a two-pronged thrust in that answer. You see, the Lord was quoting from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. We go back to that sixth chapter of Deuteronomy and at verse 16, where the words that the Lord quoted are actually found. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16 it is stated, Ye shall not tempt Yahweh your Elohim, as he tempted him in matter. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swear unto thy fathers, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as Yahweh hath spoken. And so there's the words that the Lord Jesus Christ quoted. Ye shall not tempt Yahweh your Elohim. And in so doing he was stating his, his, his intention, that he was going to observe all the commandments of his father, that he was going to uh, diligently seek to do that which was right and good before Yahweh, that ultimately Yahweh might give him the land that he had sworn unto his fathers. But you see, as we said, there was a twofold thrust in his words. You see, like verse 16, he shall not tempt Yahweh your Elohim as ye tempted him in Massa. And there in turn is a reference back to the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus where Israel tempted Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Exodus chapter 17 
and verse 2. The people were at Rephidim and there was no water for them to drink. Wherefore we read in verse 2, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt Yahweh? We go over to verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted Yahweh saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Here was a nation, brethren and sisters, that Yahweh had brought out of Egypt. They'd seen the mighty plagues upon Egypt. They kept the Passover, seen the death of the firstborn of Egypt. They'd seen the Red Sea open. They'd seen the, uh, Pharaoh's chariots destroyed in the sea. They'd come into the wilderness. They'd had the bitter waters of Marah made sweet. And here they are now saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? You see, and Yahweh demonstrated that he was among them at that time. Because we're no doubt familiar with the story. Moses was told to go to the rock and to take the, the rod with which he'd smitten the river in the land of Egypt, that rod that had turned to a serpent, and there uh, we're told in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. We know, brothers and sisters, that a parable was being worked out there. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there's Moses smote the rock with the rod that turned into a serpent. He smote that rock with the serpent rod and water came out. And there in the smiting of that rock with the serpent was set before the people Christ crucified. Christ being put to death, being bruised upon the heel by the serpent power. And the waters came forth out of that rock, the water of life, out of that crucified Saviour came the water of life by which Israel could be saved. But you see, that, and the, but the place was called Massa and Meribah. It was called that because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted Yahweh saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? And there before them at that time he set before them the parable of a crucified Messiah through, from whom the waters of life would come. You know, Israel, we, we, we learn in, in such places as, as uh, Numbers chapter 14, for example, Israel repeatedly tempted Yahweh in that way. It was a characteristic of them that time after time after time you can go through the word of God and you'll find many places where it's referred to that Israel tempted Yahweh but we just look at Numbers 14 and verse 22 the time when these spies had come back from going forth from the land and Yahweh swear with an oath that that evil generation that would not go into that land uh, he swore with an oath that they would not enter into his rest Numbers 14 and verse 22 we read because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness 
and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. That was a characteristic of Israel. They saw his glory, they saw his miracles. They, they had his, his voice speak to them but they would not hearken to that voice and they tempted him uh, time and time again until ultimately uh, they, they were driven back into the wilderness and refused entry into that land. You know, we find in Luke chapter 11 the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the generation of his day. Luke chapter 11 and verse 29 And when the people were gathered thick together he began to say This is an evil generation. They seek a sign and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jonah was a man who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and he was then spewed out upon the beach. It was typical of the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was typical of the seed of the woman bruised upon the heel by the serpent power but then three days later bruising that serpent power on the head in being raised from the dead to provide the water of life to all in Israel who would believe in him. The Lord Jesus Christ rebuked that nation as an evil generation that sought a sign. He says, look, no sign's going to be given you but the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, there in the wilderness was the adversary come to the Lord Jesus Christ. A representative, we believe, of the priesthood at that time. Coming in response to the testimony of John that the Messiah was in their midst. Coming because John was testifying that he'd heard the voice from heaven declaring that the, that the Messiah was in their midst. And they come to him and said, give us a sign. You give us some miraculous sign and we believe that you're the Son of God. There was a nation rejecting the work and the testimony of John and they were seeking a dramatic sign. They were asking the question, is Yahweh with you or not? Is Yahweh among us at this time or not? You know, that was a nation that was tempting Yahweh. So not only would the Lord Jesus Christ have been tempting Yahweh if he had acted upon the suggestion of the adversary, but the Lord Jesus Christ was rebuking that adversary, was showing him that he was putting himself right in the very position that Israel had always put themselves in, in tempting Yahweh by rejecting the, the signs and the evidence that Yahweh had given, he directed them back to Exodus chapter 17 showing that the sign that they were going to be given was that the Messiah would first be manifested in their midst as a sacrificial victim to be smitten by the serpent power of sin after the manner of the sign of the prophet Jonah but then after three days he would rise in power and provide the water of life that could save that nation if they would receive it. But that generation rejected, rejected the testimony of John and they sought a dramatic sign as a proof that Yahweh was 
among them. And so we believe that the answer of the Lord Jesus Christ to that suggestion was twofold. One was telling him exactly why he wouldn't do it and other rebuking that rebuking them for even seeking a sign of that manner and that magnitude when they had the testimony of John telling them that the Messiah was in their midst, when they had the types and testimony of the, of the Old Testament and the prophets that the Messiah must first come as a lamb to be led to the slaughter and before he would finally be manifested as a great king. But the adversary wasn't even satisfied with being refuted once again from the word of God. Returning to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, we read again the devil taking him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And so a third proposition was put to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ at this time. We read in verse 8, And again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. Once again, I don't believe that this was literally done. I believe it was only done by the power of suggestion. I believe there is a particular proposition that the adversary was putting before the Lord Jesus Christ here. And he did it by the power of suggestion. He was putting a proposition to the Lord. He didn't literally take him up into a high mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the world. Now when we read the account in Luke chapter 4, and verse 5 again we find it is put slightly differently verse 5 and the devil taketh him up into a high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time so it was done in a very short space of time I don't believe there was a high mountain in which they would go up to and look at all the things that were incorporated in the suggestion that was put before him. But by the power of suggestion, he, 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 the, the adversary endeavoured to paint a picture before the Lord Jesus Christ. But what was the picture that he was painting? I believe here once again that the adversary, being a representative of the priesthood, had a, very, had a particular picture in mind that he was trying to present before the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's why we're told he takes him up into an exceeding high mountain. Or as Luke says it, a very high mountain. Why should he take the Lord to an exceeding high mountain? We find that there are certain passages of scripture, certain Old Testament prophecies, that refer to mountains. For instance, Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 2. We read that where Ezekiel received his vision of the house of prayer for all nations, we read in verse 2, and in the visions of God, uh, and, in, and in the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel 
down upward upon a very high mountain, by which was the frame of a city on the south. Now you see, we know that that very high mountain he's speaking of there is to be the very bottom centre of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And it is, it is from that very high mountain that the word of Yahweh is ultimately to go forth to all nations of the earth. We learn of this from the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah. Isaiah chapter 2 is another section of scripture that, that speaks of this high mountain. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established in the top of the mountains shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come ye and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh to the house of the Elohim of Jacob and he will teach of it Teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And so you see there again in, in, in Isaiah, we see that the focal centre of the kingdom of God in the future is going to be the mountain of Yahweh, unto which all peoples will flow. Again, perhaps we could turn to the prophet Daniel, where words relevant to the point come to our minds in the prophecy of Daniel at chapter 2 and at verse 35 we read then was the iron, the clay, the brass the silver, the gold broken to pieces together and became like the source of the foundation voice and the wooden took them away that no place was found for them and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. As I see in all of these Old Testament visions of the kingdom of God that Israel thought that they were about to establish at that time, we find that this mountain uh, uh, forms a prominent part of that kingdom. And in those prophecies of, from the Old Testament we see a glorious picture given to us of the future messianic kingdom associated with a great mountain. And I believe, I, I suggest anyway, that that is the basis of the statement there that the devil taketh him, uh, um, him up into an exceeding high mountain. Because I believe the devil, by the picture that he was trying to paint before the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ here, was trying to paint a picture of the kingdom that was promised to the Messiah. And he takes him over an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. It's interesting here to note that in Matthew the word world there is the word cosmos. A word that, that refers to the order and arrangement of things. In the Jewish mind it, 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 it had a particular connection with the, with the arrangement that God had established. In the book of Luke however we find that a different word is, is recorded. We find that Luke records when he, when he says that, that uh, in, in Luke chapter 4 and verse, verse um, 5 he showeth him all the kingdoms of the uh, Oikomene which is the, the habitable. You see, it, it's consistent with the different um, 
different um, slants that the, 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 the two writers are giving. Matthew, as we have seen repeatedly, is writing primarily for Jews. Luke is, is writing for the Gentiles. And so when, when uh, uh, Matthew records it, it's the kingdoms of the cosmos, of the Jewish order and arrangement of things. When Luke is speaking, it's the kingdoms of the whole habitable that he's speaking of. You see, the, the Jewish mind was the extension of the Jewish order of things to, to embrace all kingdoms of the world. But, but, but you see, to the, to the uh, Gentile that Luke is writing, he just speaks of the whole habitable. Now, we find then that the, 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 the devil says to him, he showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these things will I give thee. You know, we go back to the pages of the Old Testament. Such pages as Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and verse 8. Or verse 7 and 8. He says, I will declare the decree. Yahweh hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. What was the testimony of John? What were the words that were spoken from heaven at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, the adversary comes and says, If you're the Son of God, you do this, this, this and this. Because look, back in Psalm 2, where it's declared that you're the Son of God, verse 8 says, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen or the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Yet it was promised to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God would give him the nations for his inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for his possession. That, that he would break them with a rod of iron and so on and so forth. You know, in the 24th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, it's promised that he would rule over those nations in glory. Isaiah chapter 24, and at verse 23, we read, Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when Yahweh of armies shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his ancients gloriously. You see what the adversary is doing. By the, by the, the means of, of, of quoting again from the Old Testament scriptures, he's taking the Lord Jesus Christ from exceeding high mountains. He's taking him to do a picture of the kingdom in the future. And he's saying, look, if you're the son of God, all these things are promised to you. All of them are promised to you. And he's showing him, out of the scriptures I believe, the things that the Lord Jesus Christ are destined to have, but he's saying to him, come on, you grasp them now. You see in verse 9 he says, and he says unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. All these things will I give thee. 
Now, who ever could be in a position to say those words? Well, I believe the priesthood of Christ's day could have deluded themselves into thinking those words. You see, you go back to the pages of the Old Testament and you see the place that the priesthood played in the establishment and, and, the, and the, the, the running of the kingdom of God on earth in the past. You know, we go right back to the days of Joshua when Joshua led them into the land and, and gave them their inheritance in the land. We find Joshua working in harmony with Eliezer the priest. In Joshua 14 and verse 1 we're told that it was Joshua and Eliezer that, that divided that land up and gave them their inheritance. It was Joshua of the, uh, uh, um, working in harmony with Eliezer the priest that gave Israel their inheritance in the first place. You see, we come down to the times of David and Saul. Who was it that anointed the first king of Israel? It was Samuel. Samuel was a Levite. And he officiated as the priest in those days. He was spoken of as Samuel the prophet, but he, he was of the tribe of Levi, and there's no question that he officiated as a priest. And he anointed Saul, and he anointed David as the first kings of Israel. We go down through the history of the kingdom. And from such places as Second Chronicles 23, 1 uh, Kings chapter 1, we learn that it was the high priest's position to anoint the kings. We find that Uzziah was smitten with leprosy because he, he pushed aside the priesthood and wanted to act as a priest himself. And he was smitten with leprosy for so doing. And right through the, the, the history of the kings, the kings were, were, had to work in harmony with the priesthood. And they, the kings themselves, like the people, had their approach under Yahweh through the priesthood. You see, and so we see that this adversary that came to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, look, all these things will I give thee, look, these can all be yours if you'll fall down and worship me. You see, that really is just a, a request that the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledge their position and authority. That he bow to their position and authority. You see, they claim to sit in Moses' seat uh, and so on and so forth. When he says, bow down and worship me, it was really an appeal to him that he might acknowledge them as the divinely appointed mediators between Yahweh and that nation. And as they paint the picture before him of how he can become a glorious king in the earth, they're telling him that he's got to work in harmony with that priesthood that, that Yahweh had established. And so I believe that was the proposition that was put to the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 8 and 9 of Matthew chapter 4. A picture was painted before him of the future messianic kingdom. Uh, the, 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 the appeal was made to him that he could throw in his lot with the priesthood of that day that he work in harmony with them and that, and that them together as king and priests they could establish the kingdom of God there and then. You see, and that was the messianic hope of the people of Israel at that time. They weren't looking for a Messiah that was going to come as a, a, as a lamb led to the slaughter. They were looking for a mighty king who could deliver them from the Roman yoke, 
<coughs> kick the Herods out of the land, establish again the throne of David, and extend the influence of Israel to all corners of the earth. And I believe that this adversary was a representative of the priesthood who thought in that way and thought that they, together with the Lord Jesus Christ, would have had the power to grasp those things at that very time. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ was once again well equal to the situation. His mind was too full of the right understanding of how Yahweh was going to establish his kingdom to be, to be uh, uh, drawn aside by such a, a suggestion as this. You see, in verse 10 we read, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. And here now the Lord Jesus Christ commands the adversary to be on his way. Satan, he calls him, adversary, enemy, and he could see that this man before him was the enemy of the truth. He could quote the scriptures, yes. He could paint pictures of the kingdom of God. He could quote from Psalm 91:11, but he was the enemy of God because he savoured the things that be of men and not those things that be of God. And he could see that the, the, the adversary at this time was looking for a kingdom based upon the principles of flesh and not upon the principle of God manifestation. And so the Lord Jesus Christ now utterly refutes what he says and tells him to be on his way and labels him an enemy. He says, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he could see quite clearly that that adversary before him was really an idolater, a worshipper of flesh, seeking for a kingdom based upon fleshly principles and thinking that Yahweh was going to do it for them. And so he rebukes that enemy, showing he was an idolater, a worshipper of, uh, of self, a worshipper of flesh. And he rebukes him by showing that he must become a worshipper of Yahweh, he who will be thy mighty one and him only shalt thou serve. And once again the Lord is quoting from the 6th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and at verse 13 and 14 we read the words that the Lord Jesus Christ actually spoke to the adversary at that time. We could read verse 12. Beware lest thou forget Yahweh which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear Yahweh thy Elohim and serve him and shall swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For Yahweh thy Elohim is a jealous ale among you lest the anger of Yahweh be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. You see, and there was the command Thou shalt fear Yahweh thy Elohim or worship him as it's rendered in the Gospels. Thou shalt fear Yahweh thy Elohim and serve him. Ye shall not go after other gods. And there was Israel at that day seeking a kingdom based upon the principles of flesh, seeking a kingdom based upon the principles of self-elevation, and they were worshipping other gods. 
They were worshipping the gods of the people that were round about them, who served themselves. And there was a warning of verse 15, lest the anger of Yahweh be kindled against thee, and he destroyed thee from off the face of the earth. And of course a few years later, Israel were driven out of their land to spend a period of, uh, of dispersion among the nations until ultimately they would be cleansed and purged and restored back to their land once more. You know, we, we find the same words recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. Thou shalt fear Yahweh thy Elohim, him shalt thou serve, and to him thou shalt cleave, and swear by his name, he is thy praise, he is thy God that has done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with three score and ten persons. And now Yahweh thy Elohim has made thee as the stars of heaven to multitude. And who did that? The, who's, the strength of whose arm was it that did that? It wasn't Israel's. It was the power of Yahweh working with that nation. And that was the principle that the uh, uh, people of his day had to acknowledge. Uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ was expressing his intention that he would fear Yahweh and him alone would he serve. And there was the word of Yahweh firmly enthroned in that man's mind. So that man never wavered for a moment from that principle. And he could see right through the suggestion of the adversary and he rebuked him in this particular way. In the first of Samuel chapter 7 and verse 3, again we have reference to the same principle. In Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto Yahweh and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, the Jews of Christ's day were seeking deliverance out of the hand of the Romans but they wanted to do it by the strength of their own arm. If only they had worshipped Yahweh and served him without a singleness of heart then Yahweh would have delivered them out of the hand of the Romans instead of delivering them into the hand of that nation. And so we find that the Lord Jesus Christ answers the adversary in that particular way. His mind was so full of the word that immediately that answer came forth. He commanded the Satan to be on his way and he exhorts him to worship Yahweh thy Elohim and him only shalt thou serve. Then we read, Then the devil leaveth him. Mark puts it, uh, Luke rather, puts it a little bit differently. Says the same things but just adds a few details. We read in um, verse 13 of Luke chapter 4, and when the devil had emptied, had ended rather, all the temptation or every temptation, he departed from him for a season. Very interesting little statement that. Departed for, from him for a season. 
Now the word season is the word keros. Concerning which Bullinger says it means the right measure and relation. Especially as regards time and place. Hence the right time. Suitable or convenient time. The opportune point of time at which a thing should be done. So we find the Revised Standard Version renders that little passage in Luke until an opportune time. Others have suggested or until a good opportunity. So the devil left him until he got a good opportunity and he was back at him. Because you know, there in the wilderness the course of events had been set. The course of events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and the course of events for the religious leaders of that nation were set. They were set at enmity one to the other. And you know, we only got to read through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and there were the religious leaders of that nation watching, waiting every opportunity that they might discredit him. And they were filled with such enmity and hatred that finally they took him and they crucified him. And I believe the course of events was set in the wilderness there. The religious leaders, I believe, had come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd appealed to him to manifest himself to the nation as the Messiah, to throw in his lot with them and they'd establish the kingdom of God there and then. But the Lord Jesus Christ had utterly refuted it. He absolutely rebuked them on every point. And the enmity between the two powers had been established. And the course of events was set that was ultimately going to lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Luke says, the devil left him in the wilderness there. Left him waiting their opportunity to have another go at him. Watching him. Looking for a fault. Trying to, 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 to discredit him. To overthrow him. To destroy him. Until finally they took him and they crucified him. And so we see now the Lord Jesus Christ once again left alone in the wilderness. Verse 11 of Matthew 4 tells us, The devil leaveth him. And behold, angels came and ministered under him. Angels now came and ministered under him. After probably the manner of Elijah, when Elijah was fleeing from Jezebel and was very faint and hungry. An angel of God came and and, and, uh, fed him with a cake upon the strength of which he could go for 40 days. Uh, We find that that, that Israel in the wilderness, God's national son, was was, was fed uh, uh, with manna in the wilderness. And now we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, his needs are met. He was hungered. He did 40 days without food. He was hungered. Angels came and ministered under him. Doubtless they would have provided him with food at that particular time. And so, demonstrating the providential care that Yahweh had promised. Providing him with the food that was necessary for his body. Because he himself had given himself to feed upon every word that proceeded out of the mouth of Yahweh. And that providential care now was spoken of by the adversary in the uh, uh, quoted from, from Psalm 91. The Lord now experienced that because he put his trust in Yahweh and sheltered under the shadow of his wings. And ultimately, of course, we know that because, that because he manifested the qualities of a true son, 
obedient and submissive unto his father. We read in the second chapter of Philippians that ultimately he was raised from the dead, he was exalted on high and given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And so there in the wilderness, as the, 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 the adversary has now left the wilderness to make his way back to Jerusalem, to wait a good opportunity when they might get at him again. But there in the wilderness, the Lord Jesus Christ experiences those very things that Yahweh has promised to those who trust and rely upon him. But there you see, in the wilderness, the course of events had been set. The Lord Jesus Christ, being guided by the power of Yahweh's word, had come out of that trial triumphant. It was revealed that the the word of Yahweh was indeed enthroned in his mind as a king, ruling and governing his body. And there we see the Lord tested in these particular ways. He came into conflict with the messianic concept of the people of his day. He refuted it and he demonstrated the principle by which he would live. We noted last time that the order of the temptations is different in Luke to what it is in Matthew because we believe as Luke presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as a man is showing us that in that trial and temptation the Lord was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. You see, he was, there was the lust of the flesh in the appeal for the provision of food to a man who was starving hungry. But the answer of the Lord was to obey and to submit to my Father is more important than bread. You see, there was the appeal to the, uh, to the um, lust of the eye in all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of them. But the Lord Jesus Christ showed that in his life he would not be guided by the lust of the eye. But as a true, loyal and obedient son he would submit to his father. He would walk in his father's way and wait till his father would provide him the things he had promised. And then in the, the temptation to make a dramatic sign, uh, dramatic sign before the eyes of the people the appeal to the pride of life he showed that in no way was his life going to be governed by the pride of life. Not for a moment even was he to be drawn aside by the pride of life. But he, he would give loving service and, and uh, obedience unto his heavenly Father. You know, brothers and sisters, we are tempted in, all, in those points. We're tempted in every one of those points. We have to contend with the lust of the flesh, the necessities of life. We have to contend with the, 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 the pride of life, our image, our position, and so on and so forth. We have to contend with the lust of the eye. We have to contend with those things almost every day of our life. We, of course, have to provide the necessities of life. We have to provide bread for ourselves and our families. But you see, the more important principle the Lord has shown us is every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. 
It's very, very easy, brethren and sisters, in this world, with all its detections and all its traps, it's very, very easy for us to be drawn beyond the principle of just providing the necessities of life and to be drawn into things that will draw us away from every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh. We are all subject, brethren and sisters, to the lust of the eyes. There's many, many things in this world that the eyes can fix upon and desire. We are not tempted, of course, in the way that the Lord was with the prospect of all kingdoms of the earth. But it doesn't matter. In many little ways, the same trials and temptations beset us. There are many things that, 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 that are displayed before the eye. There are many things that we need. But when we're, as we're moved to make our choice, are we just moved by the necessities? Or do we have in the back of our mind the image that we're presenting to others? Do we have in the back of our mind are we being led by the lust of the eyes all the things we would like to have for ourselves never mind the things that Yahweh really has set down that we should have but the things we would like for ourselves you see and then there's the pride of life our position, what other people think of us the impression we make on others it's so easy brethren and sisters to be dictated by those things in the everyday transactions of life do we just get things for needs and necessities or do we in our mind really wonder what impression we're going to make on others if we have this sort of a thing or that sort of a thing we're tried every day in all of these ways brethren and sisters but there before us is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ the greatest thing to him was every word that proceeded out of the mouth of Yahweh. The greatest principle to him was humbly, humble submission to his Father, accepting the position that the Father marked out for him in this life. Accepting that without question and leaving it in the Father's hands to give greater things in the future. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't concerned about impressing others. He couldn't have cared less about what other people thought of him. The great principle that he thought of was trusting and submitting to the will of his heavenly Father. There was a man, brethren and sisters, in whom the word of Yahweh reigned supreme. It reigned supreme it controlled his life in every aspect. See, he was tempted in all points like unto us. He was tried through the lust of the flesh in the aspect of being hungry and being tempted to, 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 to make bread. We are tempted by the lust of the flesh in a hundred and one other ways as well. But you see, the very principle that the Lord Jesus Christ exhibited there with the word ruling of the king in his mind is the principle that we must aim at to combat the lust of the flesh. You see, the very principles in each of these things that the Lord exhibits are the principle which we must endeavour to follow. We must endeavour 
to allow Yahweh's word to rule in our minds and to control our motives and our aims and our actions and our words in life. That is the ideal, brethren and sisters, that is set before us. And may it be that we might endeavour to the best of our ability to fill our minds with Yahweh's word, to put everything else in its right and proper place, to fill our minds with Yahweh's word, that Yahweh's word might rule in us, that it might prepare us to be kings in the future age.